0: today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, August the 10th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, go to Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at com. Welcome in, everybody. Uh, Monday morning, get the week started here. And I figured, uh, you know, really the theme of this show is an opportunity to, believe it or not, we're a little over two weeks into the season, and we're talking about being at the quarter mark. And that always, historically, has been when we look under the hood and we say, hey, okay, okay how's this season going? You know, what are things looking like? And, and really do... Uh, uh, a thorough look at the team for the first point. It's almost that first benchmark. We talk about tests throughout the season. Well, you can't really do that with the tests, like the road trip test or the homestand, big homestand, or seeing how you play against, you know, certain top competition because you just don't get a feel of anything in a 60 game season In a season where, as I predicted, there's going to be, there's been, and there will continue to be a lot of small and large injuries. You have, a uh, virus protocol and teams that, you know, have to be quarantined like Miami was for a while. And St. Louis is right now and, and games will have to be made up and, and jammed into a short span of time. Now with seven inning double headers and whatnot. So you can't do your traditional one. You know, I'd go in, I'd give you my take. We get one of the beat guys on and, and, you know, talk to them and away you go. So for this, it's just going to be me kind of giving you my small state of the union. And look, uh, after a, a bad start, after playing poorly against the Braves uh, specifically, uh, the Mets really are a bad ninth-inning pitch by Edwin Diaz and a bad bullpen game away from being 9-7, and, and I think your take on everything, I don't know if it would be much different, but I think it would feel different than 7-9. and nine. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to get crazy about any of the record because... With with half the league plus making the playoffs, I think you're going to see uh, teams, teams under 500, what have you, making the playoffs it's about finishing first or second in your division and and if you're good and you're in a tough division you probably will still make it because I don't think you're gonna have in your league three really tough divisions and you'll have one of the better records out of the final two spots that are non first or second place and you get in the playoffs and that's the tournament and that's where the fun begins I said 35 to 36 wins will get you division title and guarantee you a playoff spot I stand by that I do not think the Mets can get to that uh, through the first 60 games. I really don't. I'd be very surprised if they do. Well, you know, we still have with this team uh, a lot of questions unanswered. And and this is why, and I, and I hope you see it, because as we have in this conversation, this is why 162 games is the right amount. I'm okay in the future of maybe getting it down to 154 if you want to expand the playoffs, because I don't like November baseball, not because of a virus, because uh, I just don't, I, I like the season to end at a certain point. I think you got to move on, and November's always been, uh, you know, that time to move on. So you really can't get a feel of the team. Baseball is just—it's not a sprint; it's not meant to be that. You can't get the storylines played out. You can't uh, see the team come into focus. It's—it's it's just a different type of thing. So where are we at with what we do know about this team here on August 10th? And we're we're twenty-somewhat days for the trading deadline, which by the way, there is no situation that I would do any kind of significant deal, unless it's something for next year and beyond. I'd be careful with that as well, because we don't know what the situation is going to be, that I would make any kind of deal to go for it this year. That's against what I usually say. This is one of these seasons you go out there, you put the bats out there, you put the ball, the gloves out there, you play, you play with the hand that you have. You try to do as, as much as possible, but you play with the hand you have. But anyway, from day one, I said about this Mets team, the starting pitching is troublesome. So in a normal season, we'd be talking at the quarter mark, well, they need to go out and get another arm, a veteran arm. And and that would be the talk, I think, uh, you know, at, from pretty much in Memorial Day until the trade deadline, that would be the talk about this Mets team. That's I really believe that. Waka was the wild card. He has shoulder issues. We knew that coming into the season. That's why I was more comfortable with him as a 5 or a 6 option, more so than a 3 or a 4. That's what happens when you lose Noah Syndergaard. That's what happens when you lose Marcus Stroman. Uh, you have to have the depth. Depth is hard to come by. In a regular season, you need 8, nine, ten options. Right now, you may still need that, maybe more in a crazy season like this. This really means with Waka out, Parcellos starts are more important. I think overall, you're going to continue to look at Porcello's numbers and say, uh, blah, they're not really that great. But it's going to be colored. It'll be colored by the fact that there's going to be a stinker wrapped between a couple of starts like you saw in, in Washington. Six innings, two or three runs. I'll take it. That'll be fine. The problem with Porcello, similar to Jason Vargas, I think there's a, I think he's better than Vargas, but he's similar at this point in his career where certain lineups I don't think you're going to like him against. And you got to hope that those games don't come in the middle of a bad stretch or a bad losing streak. Um, so sometimes that's what would happen with Vargas. You knew with skin certain lines, you're like, ah, he's not going to be able to be competitive. Although towards the end of his tenure, he was really competitive. He did a really nice job last year towards the end of, end of his tenor, end, tenure. But six innings, two to three runs, you know you're going to need to get nine to 12 outs out of the bullpen. You know what you're going to get. Matt's is Matz. You know, we talk about this all the time, and I think he's at a point uh, and And I think that the idea that he's gonna be a one or a two, he's gonna develop into that every day moves further and further away from people's minds. That doesn't mean he's a bad pitcher, and sometimes we don't want those guys on our team because they don't meet expectations. Mats is a guy that's gonna probably pitch better at city field than on the road. He's gonna drive you crazy with somewhat non-competitive starts. Um, you know, and, and he's gonna be as close to a number three as what you got right now but he's a damn good back at the end of the rotation option. Occasionally, he'll give you top of the rotation performance, but you don't uh, bank on it. Strowman, he's imperative. He's the guy that if they are going to go anywhere in this short season, they need him to to be healthy, they need him to return, and they need him to pitch like he has historically, which is top of the rotation. Without him, you're staring at bullpen games, uh, you're going to have to go to that Brooklyn alternate site. And you're going to have to go look for a scrap heap pickup. I know that's. I think they knew something was going on with Waka. That's why they got Jurado from Texas earlier in the week. Is Walker Lockett an option? Franklin Killamay looked pretty good in relief against Atlanta. Maybe they could put him in there. Uh, we had mentioned uh, Erasmo Ramirez. I mean, you're going to go two routes. You're going to go the scrap heap guy that has a history of really not success, He's had maybe potential. You're hoping to catch lightning in a bottle or get a few good op, uh, starts out of him. You know, in a regular season, you know, maybe you ask for three to five starts and you try to hold the fort with that. Here, one to two starts is extremely damaging. I mean, we're a quarter of the way in and the team is 7-9 and that's hardly even scratching the surface on a regular baseball season. So we'll see which direction the Mets will go. Like with David Peterson, who I'll get to here in a minute, I would rather go with a young arm that has some potential and upside to see what they have. Continue to want to learn about what this team has. You don't want to make drastic decisions or declarations about results in a 60-game season, especially when teams like Miami, maybe St. Louis, are going to be compromised, so you may not be getting their best rosters day in and day out, but they're still major league players. They're still... Uh, even at the very worst 4A players, that's still pretty good. And those are players that uh, at times uh, contribute to a big league team, so you can't just dismiss it and throw it out. But you want to be careful about what you take away. Now, why you want to go that route is look at David Peterson. Look at what he's done. Uh, I like him. He's got moxie. He's competitive. He he tends to, when he gets in trouble, he limits the damage. He throws strikes. I, I still think that inning in Atlanta... When McNeil made the throw home and they got they botched the rundown, that could have been a disastrous inning that could have knocked him out. I could have saw I could see anything like that knocking Waka out or maybe uh, you know uh, Porcello out. But Peterson buckled down and and he actually missed some bats in that game. He misses more bats than you think. Uh, he really knows how to pitch, and uh, you know he's a guy that again he and Mats could make up a decent four or five on this team, and and give you very good high quality starts out of the back end of the rotation. Now, five of those guys, that's a different type of team. Uh, it's it's a team that you have to build differently. Uh, but guys in the back end uh, in, in that sense, I'll take them and they're lefty. So that's good. I think that that really helps this team going forward and you learn you're learning about Peterson. So now going into the offseason, not that you, you know, maybe put him in uh, you know, marker on your board because you still want to see more out of him. Uh, as he gets through his second time around the league, and, and, and because of the familiarity of the... You'll, you'll see the Braves a lot. You'll see the Nats a lot because of the way the schedule is. You may learn a little bit about how teams are going to adjust to this kid. So you may learn this more this year because of... In that sense than you would in a normal year, because in a short span of time, you're going to be playing those teams a lot. And it's almost like in spring training when you try to hold these guys back because they see him a lot. That'll be an interesting. That's something we haven't really talked about. That'll be interesting to see how that goes. But... In general, you would not, probably. I don't know if they would go to Peterson in a normal season. They may have wanted him to spend more time in AAA and, and and hone a few things. This could be a lesson for teams. Sometimes you got to throw these kids to the fire. What better way to learn than at the big league level? What better way to learn? So, uh, you know, that's where you're at. This rotation, I said from day one, is iffy. It's a rotation that's going to require that this team get up to sometimes twelve outs for the bullpen, and I know the bullpen has been better since some of its problems in the first, you know, six seven games. Um, but twelve outs is a lot to ask for any bullpen. You're not going to the Flexens this year and the Drew Guignons, a guy. I can never say that guy's name. I, I, forgive me. Um, but Familian Batances still make me very nervous. They walk a lot of guys. They've been much more hittable. Uh, you do have enough, though, to navigate those 12 outs with Diaz and Lugo and Wilson. I think Jason Shreve has been really good, especially pinning teams down, uh, bridging that fifth or sixth inning kind of situation. You know, he's gotten as much as six or seven outs. That's big, I think, um, you know, for any bullpen to have a guy like that. And He's always been a guy that's had potential. And has had some results, so he's not a scrub. He's not your, you know, he's not your typical scrappy pickup. You know, Drew Smith has shown, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit, and uh, you know, Jared Hughes, who's a guy that I remember him last year because I think he gave up that big home run to Todd Frazier in Philadelphia, and he, you know, does the wild run into the bullpen, and he's and he's in his mid thirties and he's bounced a little bit, but and he doesn't always have, you know, the greatest peripherals when you look at him, but. He's a guy that appears to be a competitor, has a heavy ball that you can't elevate. Uh, You're going to need good defense uh, because he's going to get you ground balls. But uh, those are guys that you want out of the bullpen. I I I think he's going to take the role of what Brad Brock was uh, coming out of spring training going to have. I have a feeling, Brock, you're not going to see him. I know he came back. He had the coronavirus. He came back. I know he's got a couple of newborns at home. I have a feeling he's, and I don't know this, he, he smells of an opt-out type guy because I don't know after two, three weeks, why is he not back? Cause he, you know, the Mets bullpen could certainly use him. So either he's hurt, not coming along, or, uh, you know, maybe he's decided uh, this season's not for him, which, you know, is fine. You know, he's got a situation at home that uh, has to be tended to, and that's important. So uh, could his Mets still be competitive and win with that pitching situation? Asking 12 outs out of the bullpen, ask, you know, having a rotation that's not your typical Mets rotation where, you would be able to run three or four starters out that were top 25 to 30 in all of baseball. Well, you have an offense that has not scratched the surface. I mean, look, uh, you you have an offense that has yet to uh, get Alonzo, McNeil, Ramos, or Rosario going. All of them have not been good or haven't been themselves. You've seen flashes from uh, you know Alonzo. He's been awful year. You know The sophomore expectations and the slump that we were worried about. We're seeing it right in front of us. Uh, McNeil is not quite himself. He's not been as bad as maybe Ramos and Rosario and Alonso. He's not been himself. He's striking out a little bit more. Got a little unlucky yesterday. Hit a bullet uh, where uh, you know a, you know a great play uh, was made. So uh, you know that to me, the speed skater guy. And I can't remember his name from Miami. The speed skater guy was jumping all over the field. So uh, for the Marlins. So uh, you know that's that. Uh, and then of course Cano is hitting. And now you don't know because Cano is a guy that gets very hot, I think, for for a period of time and then goes cold and gets hot. And that doesn't really lend itself to a 60-game season. So what Cano are you going to get when he comes back? Um, right now, Conforto and Nimmo, I think, are carrying a lot of the offense. And, of course, uh, you know, J.D. Davis and you got Andres Jimenez. And and J.D. Davis, to me, is, is one of the interesting guys because I said go in the season. He's a guy that over the period of you know mid-July to the end of the year was an elite top 15 hitter. I mean, he had big hits last year. He was a lot better than I think people give him credit for. I think some of that had to do with he was not really, you know, he was nondescript defensively in the outfield, and he's not really a great left fielder. He, he does the best he can do. But now that he's playing third base, now that he's in a position that he's comfortable at, and he's He's improved. I could see a difference with him, uh, with his throws. He's he's not quite as pronounced with that hitch where he taps the ball. He certainly got a great arm. Uh, in that defensive game in Washington, he was one of the guys that made a great play. A couple of great plays with the tag at third base, as well as the the throw. Uh, he made a he's he's made great improvements there. And if you have a guy with his kind of offense, and he gives you adequate defense at third, you got yourself your third baseman. That's the guy, and that is a big game-changer for this lineup because I do believe the guys like Alonzo and McNeil and Rosario will hit. Ramos I always worry about because catchers could fall off the cliff. And as far as Jimenez, which I know everybody's going gaga about, I like Jimenez, and it was interesting because Mark, uh, Mark Simon of, uh, of Stats had made a comparison of one that I've been thinking about comparing him to the Luis Castillo of the Marlins, which is dangerous because everybody remembers Luis Castillo of the Mets and they don't like him. Um, that's an interesting. In his prime, a guy that made contact, had speed, pretty good defense. I think Jimenez uh, is a guy that you can put in this lineup and he's going to be the kind of guy the Mets maybe need more of because the Mets lineup, when I look at a lineup, I look at it from the offensive side and the defensive side. And the Mets have certainly even last year have not been balanced on the defensive side. They're an off. they're a team that even when Sandy Alderson was the GM will rely on power and on base and, and trying to bully a team with, with, with runs. Defense, if it is a priority, it's with the backups. It's with guys like Juan Lagaris, uh Billy Hamilton coming in late for defense. Guys like that, you know, Jake Moriznik, I think that's one of the reasons, not only because he could hit righty against a, a tough lefty, but he's a defensive guy. So you, you were kind of doing your, your offense-defense situation, which is fine. But with Jimenez in the lineup, and if you could get him to play second base, or even if you dare say maybe you think about moving Rosario, which I'd be careful about because I think Rosario is talented, but I think Jimenez shows he has better defensive instincts. He adds a component. Maybe he's not going to hit for power. And I don't think he's going to be anything more uh, than maybe average, slightly above league average hitter. But the kind of hitter he is, I think, will make the lineup a little bit more lethal. I mean, his speed alone is eye-popping during this time. If you have speed like Jimenez in this time, uh, you stand out. That's why Trey Turner stands out. Because this used to be, you know, every team had a pretty fast guy back in the 80s, maybe even the 90s. Now it's like, wow, a guy steals bases, he runs. I think he's got energy. Uh, the defense is such a big key. I, I'd keep an eye on him, not because I think he's going to be a star. And I think that's where, you know, you'll start to hear, well, is he the guy? Because I've heard the Mets wanted to keep him over Kelnick. I mean, I think Kelnick is going to be more Conforto. That's what you're looking at as far as the type of hitter. Despite everyone thinking he's Mickey Mantle, he's going to be more Conforto or Nemo than, you know, Jimenez will be. Jimenez is not going to be Cano. But guess what? You never know what guys develop into. You never know what's inside of them. You never know the more they play, how good they become. And I like Jimenez. Again, I do not know in a normal 162-game season if they would have put him into the lineup or they would have forced him into the roster because they would have wanted him to play a AAA and hone his craft. And there's nothing wrong with that. But again, look at guys getting time at the big leagues, learning on the job, Mets are a contender, and look what happens. They get better. And I understand there's a financial component out of this because she's going to get a year of service time. But I think we got to start looking at the game and what we can do to make players better and put the most competitive product out. Even Miami. Look, they sign a couple of veteran free agents. We know Miami's not winning anything. They got some interesting young players. But they sign a couple of Aguilar. Corey Dickerson, who I think is a nice little player. And in that ninth inning, it was no gimme that they wouldn't come back. You don't have to just put players out there when you're a contender. There's not this little uh period of time or there's not this rule that the media gives you that says, Well, now you could go out and get veterans. Now you could compete. You need to compete. You could compete and rebuild. And even if competing and rebuild means going from sixty seven wins to seventy five wins, at least you're competitive and you're and you're you're putting some Value out there on the field. You're not going to be able to draw fans anymore. Fans can't come to the ballpark. And I'm not sure fans are going to be flocking back to this ballpark next year, even if there are no restrictions on gatherings. So it's really important, I think, to take these small lessons from this season. You can put these guys in positions to learn on the job at the big league level and contribute if you're a winning team. We get so focused on, well, it's his time, it's his timeline. Timelines are just a plan, they're a script. You have to adjust and look what's in front of you. You have to see what kind of player. You know, if you th- if you look at the hype about Andres Jimenez, you would think that, you know, he's one of the top hitters so far in baseball. He's not. He's below league average if you look at the advanced metrics. But he's providing valuable contributions within the scope of the team, and that's important. And if that's the kind of player he is, if he's Luis Castillo in, in Miami, I mean, Gary DeSarcini compared him to Omar Vizquel, that's, High praise. I mean, that's a, a Hall of Fame defensive shortstop and a guy that probably is a little underrated as a, as a hitter. He probably won't get in the Hall of Fame because he wasn't a Hall of Fame hitter, but he's not that far off from Ozzy Smith. You know, I've had that conversation. That's how context sometimes we put. The era and the marketing of a player and where they played and when they played uh, sometimes has everything to do with how they're viewed, how their career is viewed. So it'll be interesting. So uh, overall, where's this team? Don't worry about the record. Uh, I think they'll be, at the worst case, I think they'll be around 500 unless they get some debilitating uh, rash of injuries, which could happen. I think that'll be enough to get into this tournament. And then at that point, have some fun, watch the tournament. And as I continue to watch the season, and we'll talk about this next, although I don't think anybody will ever put this season, whatever the result is for their team, on the mantle with some of the other great seasons in their team history or remember it, Uh, nostalgically, at least in the short term, it's still important to compete, win, and complete this season because you still have a lot of people who have the wrong mindset and the wrong attitude and are trying to destroy this game and are going to destroy this game if the commissioner allows them to because if you allow the media to dictate and run your game, they're going to run you right into the ground. They do it with everything because their only agenda is their agenda and it's their agenda to have the story and to have now their politics cloud into their journalism, which is a very dangerous thing. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Mets have had some of the best broadcasting teams in the history of baseball. We do our part in remembering that, like when Mark Roseman, co-author of the book Down on the Corner, looked back on the post-game show Kiner's Corner, hosted by none other than the iconic Ralph Kiner. I agree with you. You know, you look at it, and and I've kicked this around with a lot of people, including Steve Gelbs. I would love, I know they do the on field interview, like right after the game, but that's maybe three, four seconds, and the player's off into the dugout and into postgame. And then you cut to, you know, Mets postgame live, and you have an hour worth of analysis. Uh, This was just pure player and, and the Hall of Fame player talking baseball. It wasn't over analytical, it wasn't exit velocity, it wasn't you know, how many times a shift was deployed in the game. It was just pure, simple baseball. And that's why I think people of our generation loved it. It, I I think we've gotten to a point where baseball is overanalyzed, and you lose some of the pureness of the game through the overanalyzation. And I would love to see it go back a little bit, but I don't think it will ever happen. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Alvarez, that's his name. That's the second baseman for the Marlins, who was the speed skater in the Olympics. So uh, Gary Cohen mentioned it a billion times, and I couldn't remember his his name. Here I am. Believe it or not, I can't remember the guy's name. And it must have been beaten over our heads 50 million times in a three-game series. But anyway, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, talking here about the Mets at the quarter mark. I thought it was important because Ken Davidoff wrote an article earlier, and I'm not a big Davidoff fan. I'll be Straight with you guys. I uh, had him on the program many, many years ago. Uh, I find him to be extremely rude and arrogant. Uh, I've dealt with him. Uh, very full of himself. And I don't think he particularly is good at what he does. I have to be honest. I think he's very much in the pocket of the Yankees and Brian Cashman. Uh, I mean, he almost writes like a Yankees fan if you read his his articles. And uh, I think the the post would be better served having guys who they let go, like Kevin Kernan. Then Ken Davidoff, that's my opinion. Uh never want to wish anybody losing their job, but a little disappointed that they kept him around and uh you know got rid of a, a long timer who I think provides a lot of value in a current, But but be that as it may, uh Kevin's I mean Kevin, Ken Ken's thesis of his article was changing baseball based on his experience at the Yankees Phillies doubleheader last week. So I'm against a lot of the rules changes that have happened. I'm begrudgingly going to be okay with the three batter minimum for the the relievers because I think with the data in front of us and the specialization and the lack of experience relievers have in the minor leagues working from both sides of the plate, you're almost forcing teams to develop guys that could go Lefty righty, a pitcher that could get both sides of the plate out. So, you know that I think in the long run may be an important change, and I'll I'll accept it because that was already going to be in play before the uh, the virus restrictions. With the seven inning doubleheader, I think I understand how it is being used this year. I think to use it and say it's there to keep people safe and less time at the ballpark is foolish. Insincere and almost, uh, it's almost childish thought process. Whether you're at the ballpark three hours, three and a half hours, four hours, four and a half hours, it doesn't matter. You're at risk. You know, that's that's just fact. You're at risk the minute you walk out of your house. If you're doing it because of the 60 man roster and the injury potential and the lack of depth because of what out of minor league system this year, I get it. You don't want to start having them in a 20 inning game thrown out. You know, the pitching coach doesn't want to come out and have to finish the game. You don't want to have home run derbies deciding it. That's Carnival. That's that's Sega Genesis or or PlayStation, whatever. I don't play video games. So, you know, Nintendo, I don't remember. You know, there's so many. I'm probably dating myself with all those things. But to suggest like Ken does, first of all, he throws in the only way that the sport will get back to normal is with a, a vaccine. Keep that out. You have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to vaccine that's a whole separate thing. I don't know. I'm not qualified. You're not qualified. I do know. I don't think you can have a line of people ready to throw something in their body that they know nothing about that has been rushed out by the government. That's a separate story. So let's throw that to the side. If in the, in the real key of all this and man, and according to, um, um, there's a, a, a member he talked to who has served on the, uh, baseball competitions committee. After he sees the doubleheader, one of the doubleheader games, it says it was two hours and 38 minutes was the game ended after seven innings. After he sees that and highlights that, which is what this is all about, getting in, getting out, getting home, uh, You know, he talks to this member of the committee and they said, well, we'll consider implementing it in the next collective bargaining agreement. And Ken goes on to say, in 2022, make all regular season games seven innings. And go back to now in these seven inning games – You'll still be able to in the 8th and ninth not to start the game with a runner on second base because he loves that too because it gets the game going. And then we'll go back to regular baseball in the postseason. And this goes back to my issue with sports today where they try to tinker with it to cater to people that have no intention of being hardcore fans like those that are listening to this podcast and those that are uh, really invested long term. They want to turn it into an entertainment sport for 162 games, and then, all right, now those casual fans got their fill. Throw them out the door. You want to join us? But now serious, hardcore fans. Now it's the postseason. Now it's real. Now we'll go back to real baseball. They're doing it to a certain degree with the NFL and the NBA with the way that they've, and the NFL, made it impossible for you to, to cover receivers. Everything's past interference. The NBA took all defense out. I mean, let's face it. Some of these scoring numbers that you see at the bubble or have seen over the years, they would never be. If they did these in the 90s, and maybe the 90s went too far, if they did these in the 90s, I'd be impressed. Scoring 30-something in the 90s, that's a big deal. Now, I mean, you or I can't be touched driving through the lane. We could probably get 15 points uh, if we tried in an NBA game. Probably I can't, maybe you can, but you get the the, the drift. You're catering to an audience that is going to spend the same amount of money, Gonna see the same amount of games whether you bastardize this game or not. You're trying to change the sport and alter it dramatically, and I don't want to hear about the virus because that has nothing to do with it. The virus is being used by a lot of people to justify changes that they've been trying to jam down everybody's throat for a long time, which are more meant for media convenience and to and to again try to go after a segment of society that'll never embrace you. The more you try to figure out how to be loved instead of being yourself, the worse that you're going to make yourself to the people that do love you. Remember that. And that's exactly what this proposal in the New York Post that Don LaGreca talked about on ESPN Radio, that's exactly what this is all about. It's garbage. And you have to make sure, if you're a hardcore baseball fan, you have to make sure that you say it loud enough and long enough that this is not acceptable. And I hope the Players Association continues to push back, this is where I hope the players' association uh, does their part because you got a lot of owners now that are from the Wall Street tech world, and everything goes there. They, you know, they, those guys like to change everything up. And look, a lot of change is good. And I'm not an anti-progress guy. I've been a, a pro wild card guy. I'm pro technology. Out on the field, I'm not for it with the sign stealing, getting rid of all of it. I think you're making a change for, uh, you know, a dramatic sake. For an anomaly, not the rule. But to change the game with the innings and start to turn baseball into a 162-game entertainment, video game, sport, and then the real sport starts uh, October 1st, just not for it. I don't like it in the NBA. I don't like it in the NFL. And I know it's all about fantasy baseball and gambling. You could still do all that with the way the game is played. I think developing players better I think figuring out a more creative way with technology to reduce the commercials, perhaps just simply getting players moving on and off the field is probably the best thing yet. I think forget about a pitch clock. Just say, hey, you got to be out on that field and X sprint out. Maybe you just say the the, the first pitch has to be thrown here or it's a ball. That's how you get them going, get them on the field, not in between pitches because you have to have the game and the nuance play out. I mean, at some point, you know, you want to reduce the balls and strikes to get it going. I don't care if Ken Davidoff gets home early. I don't care if the writers get home early. And I'm look, i I'm friendly with some writers. I have nothing against them. You have a job to do. If your job has you get to the ballpark at 3 and leave at 11, last time I looked, that's 8 hours. All of us will work at 8, 9, 10 hours, sometimes more. How many of you have 12-hour shifts at your job? I know I know some people that have. It's not fun. We'd rather be home, but it's our job. Now, I you know what you'll say, well, that's not you know the fans' job to sit there and, and, and go through it. What will come out of this, what we will learn from all this no fans in the stands is that the sport needs fans from a revenue stream, but I think the sport is as much, and sports in general, have to be as much tailored to TV as possible. And whether it's a two-and-a-half-hour game or a three-hour game or a three-hour and 30-minute game, fans are going to pop in and out of baseball anyway. That's the kind of sport it is. It's a slower sport, just like I said in the Open. 162-game season, you have to have the nuance develop over time. Things have to come into focus. It's almost like a series, a binge series that you're watching that you want to see the characters develop. It's not this bang, 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 bang like football. It's just not. And they're trying to change it. They're trying to fundamentally change baseball. I know that you guys don't like when I use terms that are tied into politics, but that's what the media is trying to do. And you see it. They never wanted this season to start. Look, I didn't want this season to start either under these conditions, but not because of the virus, but because of the fact that I just thought a 60-game season was jamming a round peg into a square hole. Just take a step back, see how society develops, come back in 2021. They decided against it. And part of me is like, you know what, hey, you got to fight back. You got to try to get people back to normal. Is so many people relying on the income from sports, so we're back. Don't continue to uh, caveat everything and try to, you know, blow up every every single positive test to shut the sport down. That's why you have a sixty man roster. Maybe you expand the rosters. Maybe that is a is a long term solution. There's a lot of learnings we can take from the next sixty games, and I don't want to talk about them now because we're in the midst of the sixty games. But to make after one doubleheader an article at the New York Post and, and fundamentally ask for the sport to be changed and act like this is the most brilliant thing that you know he could have written, come on, go cover the White House. Do me a favor. Sounds like that's what you want to do either. And to throw the vaccine and your own political stuff into there, ah, come on, like that's your silver bullet? Because if that's the silver bullet you're waiting for, you're going to be waiting a long time, my friend. We're going to be sitting home watching 60-game baseball for a long time if that's what the, if that's the silver bullet that you think is going to return baseball back to normal. He puts it first, even before the 17 doubleheaders. There's a lot to that that someone in another show could talk about. None of it's good, I'll tell you that much. So, Anyway, let's take a quick break, wrap up, final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, final thoughts uh, here on the Talking Mets podcast as we are a quarter of the way through the baseball season. And I'm glad you're continuing to stick with us here in this wacky season, wacky season of podcast coming to you on this Monday morning, August 10th, as we start another week of Mets baseball on the charge to 60 games. Uh, I want to give a couple well, – I want to talk about one last thing because there was uh, an interesting article by Mike Vicaro in the Post, a writer who I do like at the New York Post. But um, there is a site called Feedspot, and we have been selected here at the Talking Mets podcast. Actually, when I say we, I mean that because you, the listener, have created that as part of it. Um, at feed at Feedspot, uh, this is a top 15 New York Mets podcast. You can go to uh, blog.feedspot.com slash NY underscore Mets underscore podcast. And you can see not only my podcast, but a bunch of other great podcasts about the New York Mets. I think this one's the best or one of the best. And it seems like the guys over at Spot believe this to be the case. And that's because of you and the feedback and the good feedback, even the negative feedback. That uh, you give on the in the Apple Podcast, that you give me on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. You send me Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. I appreciate that. And uh, let me tell you something. Uh, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to do great things here. And it's all because you guys uh, continue to give me a reason to go every week. Every week I say, Is this the last week? This is the week they say I'm done. And you wake up and nobody listens. And every week you guys surprise me and it grows and it's more and more. So thank you to the guys at Feedspot for uh, bestowing us with a, a very humble honor. Like I said, anytime you dedicate an hour of your life to something like this, that tells me that you really like it, and that tells me it's worth continuing. And it is a reason why somebody should put 110% effort and make it the best possible product that it's out there, that 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 it can be, that's out there. It's, it's, it's imperative. So... Thank you again uh, for that honor. Uh, Horace Clark passed away, former Yankee, and everybody knows that the Horace Clark era was one of those down periods when CBS owned the Yankees. And Mike Vaccaro at The Post had talked about who were each New York team's Horace Clark. And I thought about that to wrap up, and how I was going to wrap up is not so much of who is each team's Horace Clark, but what are memorable Mets during bad eras of the team that you really wish... We're part of a winning club. We're part of the solution. But really, we're just a bridge to better days. And we're the maybe the, for marketing reasons, because you like them, or maybe they were the best player on a bad team, uh, you, know, you really liked them or well, they stood out. But you really wish they were part of a winning team. Now, one player who falls into that, that actually became and came back and was part of a winning team was Lee Mazzilli. Lee Mazzilli was the Mets star in the late 70s when they were bad. And then he was traded for what became one of the solutions in Ron Darling. And then he came back in a reduced role and won a championship with the Mets. So very rarely does that happen. I think some of the names that I think of over the last 25, 30 years, you could think of Ari Dickey, who was a really good pitcher on a uh, not-so-great Mets team, mediocre Mets team, and won a Cy Young. And he was similar to Mazzilli, a guy that was traded for the solution. Actually, two very big solutions. Travis Darno, who had a really good 2015, and Noah Syndergaard, who we all know how important he's been to the Mets. So there's one example. If you go back to the 90s, is Todd Hundley one of those guys? Hunley was a guy that ultimately was replaced by a better player in Piazza and a transformative player in Piazza. But I think he was a lot of the heart and soul of the Mets in 96 and, and to a certain degree in 95. So there's a guy... That comes to to mind on that whole thing. Who are some of the other guys that you think of in the late 70s, 60s, things like that? Hard to to just come off the top of your head, but maybe that's something that we could examine a little bit more. You could send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Send me some ideas and names. I'm trying to think other guys. Those are the two guys that came to mind. One who came back and won a title. One that was kind of that bridge. There's always those kind of players. You know, who else would fall into that 94? You know, Rico Bronya is a name. I always liked Rico Bronya. Again, John Olderwood, better player. Great upgrade. But that was a guy that I, I liked during those, you know, 94, 95, you know, non-competitive Mets teams that actually, if you look back, if they had invested a little bit in some veterans, those teams might not have been as bad or they might have been more of a a competitive team, if they invested a little bit, in some some veterans to bring some of those young players around. But that's another story for another day. Generation K, one of those guys, you know, maybe not because they were successful, but for marketing purposes, there's a lot you could talk about there, and there's a lot of fun that we could have. Maybe that's something that we'll um, we'll do with one of the uh, you know with one of the bloggers or the fans. But you know what? Send me if you have time. Send me an email. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Send me who your guys, you know, we'll call it your Horace Clark guys, guys that either you like for whatever reason, maybe they're not the most successful or play for the most successful teams, or were guys that, you know, played for the Mets in a bridge part where they you knew they weren't going to be there when it was the solution, but they were really good and fun to watch, and you really wish they were around when things got good. But either they were traded as part part for the solution, or their career fizzled out before they became good. Something, somebody like that. Give me some ideas. I threw you some out. Give me some ideas. So, anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this quarterway mark podcast. The Mets at a quarterway of the twenty twenty season. Of course, you could check me all the time at talkmetspodcast.com You could send me a tweet at mike silver media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. And again, want to hear from you, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at Podcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your week. Enjoy another week of Mets Baseball. We'll be back with another podcast next weekend. Until then, take care, everybody.